the Illegal Underground Podcast, episode 48. On today's show, an account of my recent short trip to New Orleans. This is the Legal Underground Podcast, hosted by Evan Schaefer, one of the friendliest trial lawyers you're ever likely to meet, but hopefully won't have to. And now, here's Evan Schaefer. When I arrived in New Orleans a week and a half ago, four of the five front-page stories in the city's daily paper, the Times-Picayune, were hurricane-related even though seven months have passed since Hurricane Katrina. Here is the lead story. At a premium, home sales in the New Orleans area are being complicated by the fact that most insurers have stopped writing new policies. And the second lead, thieves targeting vacant homes, big ticket items lifted from rebuilding sites. And another headline, Katrina medical response chaos, report, volunteers cite lack of coordination. And a fourth, no flood of cash offers yet for waterlogged school bus. The only story not related to Hurricane Katrina was about a place that probably seems very far away to residents of New Orleans, Washington, D.C. White House Chief of Staff replaced, said the last headline. The events I'm going to relate in this podcast took place about a week ago in late March. The headlines I read were from the March 29th newspaper. I was in New Orleans for only a short time, a Tuesday night and a Wednesday morning but I packed a lot of activity in my brief time there. The purpose of this podcast is, well, initially it was to provide some narration for some of the photos I plan to post on my weblog, but now it's more of a chance to think a little bit more about what I saw when I drove around New Orleans and looked at all the damage. I'm going to try to keep this podcast brief, and I'll try to just relate the facts of my visit and my conversation with a few residents. I've changed the music up a bit, Rather than the usual dose of Podsafe music, I found some public domain jazz by New Orleans musicians of long ago, Bill Johnson and Louis Russell and Grinnell Griggers. What gives me the right to podcast about New Orleans? Let me explain a little bit about my connection to the city. It begins with the simple fact that both St. Louis and New Orleans are port cities on the Mississippi River, and I'm always conscious of the fact that the river, which I see every day and which has given the people around here some great tragedies of our own, Close down to New Orleans, which has been my favorite city for about the past 20 years, since the time just after I was out of college but before law school when I lived in Harahan, Louisiana and Jefferson Parish and worked at Oxner Medical Clinic. And then after law school, when I was working for a civil defense firm, I spent about half my time doing admiralty, which brought me back to New Orleans quite a bit for things like industry conventions and expert depositions. If you've never been to New Orleans or studied its history, it's as different from any other city in the United States as is any city in Europe. I never get tired of going there, and I go there often. When I return after a short musical break, I'll tell you whether New Orleans, when I was there two weeks ago, was as dead as some people say it is, or whether it was just on life support.
Good to be back. A man pulling a number of suitcases said to me on Rampart Street on the edge of the French Quarter. I was in my car with the window down and I nodded to him, then waited for him to cross in front of me because I had a red light. But he didn't move for a second, like he was confused. Then he looked up at the stoplight again and said, Oh, I can go. I guess some things haven't changed. As if New Orleans had been turned so upside down that even the rules for crossing the street might be different. In truth, though, things are different, very different. But it's hard to notice at first if you arrive in the city at night. For me, New Orleans was part of a longer one-week trip. We started with depositions in Ruston, Louisiana, about five hours north of New Orleans by car. When I finished with the depositions in Ruston, I drove to New Orleans because it turned out that it was the nearest big city from which I could get a direct flight to Miami the next day. I wanted to look at it, too. I arrived in New Orleans about 7.30 p.m., coming in from the west on Interstate 10. I exited the highway at Causeway and drove towards the river, towards the hospital where I used to work. I was surprised by the traffic. There was lots of it, much more than usual, both on the highways and on the side roads. I drove to Jefferson Highway, then got to the river levee by cutting through the parking lot at Oxner Clinic, and then I headed towards the Garden District by the zoo and the universities. There were lots of cars there, too, and lots of people walking around. People everywhere. It seemed to be really busy for a Tuesday night. Of course, the Garden District didn't get a lot of water damage post-Katrina. Neither did the French Quarter or the Central Business District. But I was still surprised by all the activity. Maybe New Orleans was bouncing back after all. But this was only an illusion. A little later in the French Quarter, it seemed like every restaurant that wasn't directly on Bourbon Street was closed, and most of those weren't serving food even though it was still pretty early. I headed towards Jackson Square and finally found an open restaurant willing to serve me even though it was closing. I had to agree to order from the steam line, which meant pre-made, pre-warmed items like jambalaya, which is what I ordered. I talked to the bartender who explained a few of the things I'd been wondering about. The traffic I'd seen on the highways was everyone headed out of New Orleans at the end of the day for the drive to Baton Rouge, where lots of construction workers are living. So many businesses were still closed on the French Quarter, not due necessarily to a lack of demand, but because the restaurants couldn't hire workers to keep the restaurants open. The lack of workers was attributable in turn to the lack of housing in New Orleans. And when workers are available, they can often make more doing demolition or construction than they can make in the restaurant industry. The next morning, I left the hotel early and drove around the city until it was time to get to the airport for my flight. I drove for three hours looking at the damaged homes, which are all pretty unimaginable. Block after block of empty houses and abandoned wrecked cars, everything completely silent. There was a stale smell in the air, noticeable every once in a while, a musty smell like the breeze was blowing through the houses, many of which are open on both sides due to broken windows or holes in the walls. On many streets and neighborhoods, there were no people at all, just wreckage. In a few other places, I saw some cleanup or construction. But evidence of cleanup and construction is everywhere. Most of the telephone poles, for example, are covered with ads for all sorts of construction-related companies, and the major streets are filled with pickup trucks and workers going back and forth. But it was just like those exhibits at a nature museum where you can look into the center of a working beehive. You see lots of movement and activity, but it's hard to understand at least to someone who's not skilled in the science of beehives, to what purpose all those bees are moving around? Entire vast tracts of New Orleans uninhabited and silent, homes destroyed and empty, strip malls looking to be in good shape but closed down, fast food restaurants boarded up. Yet all this activity. How many homes were flooded by Hurricane Katrina? About 228,000 homes and apartments. 
An estimated 200,000 vehicles were also destroyed. As I drove around, I did see some people here and there. I saw a group in biohazard suits going into a school and another group walking into a private home. I saw a work crew taking a break with a soccer ball. I saw some people scavenging from the huge piles of debris stacked up in front of many of the homes. The two guys I saw seemed to be picking through the piles for wire. In some areas, many of the homes had trailers parked in front of them. Temporary housing, much of it probably provided by FEMA. But no people, at least not when I was there. I took a lot of pictures, but I don't think I'll put too many on the weblog. The pictures of single houses just don't do justice to the scope of the damage. As we all learned from watching the news about the hurricane back in September, this is a disaster best understood either from a helicopter or from hearing the stories of the people who actually lived through it. When I return after another short musical break, it'll be the rest of the story and then the wrap-up. After driving around New Orleans all morning, including a stop at my old apartment in Harahan, which was in fine shape, though filled now with pickup trucks, apparently construction workers who'd been able to find a home in New Orleans, it was time to get to the airport to catch my plane to Miami. In the airport, I talked for a few minutes to another bartender. After seeing so much activity on the streets, I had expected the airport to be doing a healthy business, but no, it was empty. It seemed almost vacant. Entire sections of the airport simply weren't being used. The bartender told me that she'd been laid off for seven weeks after the hurricane, and after that, she'd been so desperate to return to work that she was willing to do anything at the airport. But she got to return to bartending, because when the airport opened, all the bars opened too. She said that when she finally got back to work, the airport was very busy, more busy than usual, with relief workers coming in and out of the city. But now, the bartender said, most of the relief workers had left New Orleans, and with them went the business in the airport. It was even dead at Mardi Gras, the bartender said, which really surprised her. She figured anyone who attended Mardi Gras this year must have arrived by car. What should be done about New Orleans? I'm going to do my part by continuing to go back as often as I can. But the long-term prospects are grim, based not only on this most recent disaster, but on the geography of southern Louisiana. There was an interesting article in the February 27th New Yorker by Elizabeth Colbert, available online, in which Colbert writes about the future of New Orleans from a geographical point of view. Here's a quote. 5,000 years ago, much of southern Louisiana did not exist. A hundred years from now, it is unclear how much of it will remain. The region, it is often observed, is losing land at the rate of a football field every 38 minutes. Between 1930 and 2000, some 1.2 million acres, an area roughly the size of Delaware, disappeared. Hurricanes Katrina and Rita stripped away an estimated 75,000 acres, a loss as big as Manhattan and Brooklyn combined. Close quote. The article is well worth reading. It provides another, admittedly less popular perspective to anyone interested in the politics of the reconstruction of New Orleans. Politics, it's just a mess. 
as it includes questions like which neighborhoods should be rebuilt and which shouldn't. There's some discussion of those local questions in the article, but there's no beating around the bush either, with a climate scientist at Georgia Tech, Peter Webster, stating that the idea of rebuilding New Orleans is, quote, ludicrous, given the threat of increased hurricane activity in the years ahead. Meanwhile, one of Webster's colleagues, Judith Curry, is quoted stating unequivocally that 100 years from now, based both on climate and geology, there's just no way there is going to be a city where New Orleans is now. That's some grim news. If you like New Orleans and fear it won't return, you can take some comfort in the fact that few politicians these days are listening to scientists. Just like before the hurricanes, you might say. But I'm not here to advocate a particular position. I have a simpler message. Whatever the long-term future of the region, New Orleans will spring back in one form or another, and is welcoming tourists right now. If you're a New Orleans supporter, there's just no reason not to return, and you should. That's my very unscientific, wholly apolitical view of the situation. Not complex, not profound, but from the heart. Go to New Orleans and see it for yourself. And that's it for today. As always, this podcast was brought to you by the law firm of Schaefer & Lemire, which you can read about at riverbendlaw.com. If you want to send me feedback about my podcast, you'll find the show notes in my email address at my web blog, Evan Schaefer's Legal Underground, at www.legalunderground.com. Thanks for tuning in. This has been the Legal Underground Podcast. For more legal education, visit Evan Schaefer's Legal Underground at legalunderground.com. When it doesn't nauseate, it always entertains.